What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The United States can never default on its legal obligations. To do so would have catastrophic economic consequences. We've been way too over reliant on foreign markets. People want to create these U.S. jobs. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. The Fed, under Powell's leadership, has basically shown the banks the test in advance. Mobilizing the business community is a really good thing to do, yes. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And it's back to the drawing board as Democrats split on taxes, the way to pay for the Biden economic agenda. And you thought that was already hammered out. Bloomberg News reporting congressional Dems are on the hunt for alternatives today as Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema balk at higher corporate tax rates weeks after the House Ways and Means Committee rolled out a plan they seem to be proud of, hiking the corporate tax rate to 26.5%, capital gains to 25%, not even as much as President Biden proposed. But enough to pay for the plan, they said. Now it's on to a possible billionaire's tax, and we'll get into the details with Bloomberg's Tax and Congress reporter Laura Davison. Hear analysis a bit later on from Brandon Arnold at the National Taxpayers Union. Our panel today, Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano, along with Brendan Buck from strategic comms firm Seven Letter, former advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And if that weren't enough, Donald Trump elbowing his way back onto social media through a SPAC deal today. And it was a rally. We'll get the story from Bloomberg Stocks reporter Bailey Lipschutz and Bloomberg national political reporter Mark Niquette. So welcome to the fastest hour in politics. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, Democrats could be back to square one on the, the tax component of the reconciliation plan. As I mentioned, Senators Manchin and Cinema opposed the one already released by House. Democrats would have hiked the corporate tax rate to 26.5%, up from 21 blowing a $540 billion hole in the $2 trillion they need to raise, as I read from Laura Davison and Eric Wasson. But Democratic leaders maintain they are making progress. Or in the words of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they're coming around the bend. So here we are, down through the stretch. You know, I'm from Maryland, I'm horse racing. Sports, 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 now horse racing, and... Almost to the stretch. We've rounded the turn and we're almost to the stretch. And we're making great progress to our goal of securing a framework agreement to build back better in a timely fashion. Not that we know how this horse race will end. Apologies to our Washington area listeners who live near Pimlico. And we're joined now by the aforementioned Laura Davison, who helped to report and write one of the most read stories today on the terminal. Laura, thanks for being here. What alternatives are they now looking at? 
Well, they're kind of looking at square one. Cinema has come out in opposition of some of the uh, corporate tax increases that they were looking at, you know, raising that rate to 26.5%. Joe Manchin is really close. He wants 25. That's probably a, a manageable difference. But, you know, with cinema opposing any sorts of increases, that could be a problem. So Democrats are looking at how else can we raise taxes on corporations without actually raising the tax rate. There's a couple things they can do. They can get rid of some of the tax preferences, benefits, credits, deductions that are in the tax code. They could look at imposing a minimum tax. They could look at a tax on stock buybacks. All of these are options that are doable. The question is, are they politically viable and are they administrable? Can they actually come up and draft this language and come up with a deal, you know, in the very short time frame that they're looking at? Well, you just rattled through a whole bunch of stuff here, Laura, just to pick through a couple of them quickly. When we talk about a billionaire's tax, am I am I correct in understanding that's a tax on unrealized gains? How would that be compiled? How would the IRS do that? Yeah, this would basically be sort of a really scaled back version of the wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren was talking about during the Democratic campaign. She basically, this what this idea would look at is for the wealthiest Americans, it would look at all of their assets, look at the appreciation on those assets in any particular year, and then tax that. Normally, uh, the way that capital gains taxes are is that you don't pay anything until you sell the asset. This, the IRS would go around and collect these taxes every year, and it would really be a big change in how, uh, you know, kind of the tax system works. That's right. And uh, stock buybacks, that was another, right? Corporations would have to essentially pay, what, a a certain capital gains rate on, on the stocks they're buying? How would that work? It would be an excise tax, a 2% excise tax on okay. the amount of the uh, the stock buyback. Basically, what Democrats and even some Republicans have talked about, uh, you know, is sort of equalizing the treatment between stock buybacks and dividends. There's been a lot of complaint that, you know, corporations are putting too much money into buybacks and not enough into investments. So this would be a way to, you know, encourage companies to invest more rather than just buy their stock back to uh, juice up the stock price. Now, so I guess 26.5 is out the window. You can tell me maybe it comes back. Uh, But that would be essentially replaced by a minimum corporate tax rate. Now, that's something, Laura, we talked about on an international level. It's sort of for for foreign uh, exposure. Uh, And that's something that's come up with the G20. And there there are a lot of implications there. But domestically here, would that also be a 15 percent minimum? And, and, And how would that work? Well, it's important to note that nothing is off the table yet. You know, um, the, the House Democrats met with Cinema this afternoon to talk about um, corporate tax increases. It's still those are still ideas that are that are being bantered around. But the way that the minimum tax would work is, you know, similar to the foreign minimum tax. It would be a 15 percent rate as Biden has proposed it, and okay. basically that means that you know that corporations would pay, would pay at least 15 percent um, on their their financial profits, what they report to investors. And this would be a big change because right now companies can actually pay, you know, very low rates if they have lots of credits or deductions or things that are available to them, you know, for, in, you know, investing in research and development or mm-hmm. employee stock compensation. This would really, you know, change the, the deal and would, in some ways, uh, you know, the criticism of this idea is that it would not, uh, it would really kind of change corporate behavior, that companies would have less incentive to invest in things yeah. like research. They would have less incentive to invest in, you know, renewable energy. It would really kind of shake up the, the tax code that Congress has created. We are moving on, though, right, Laura? This House Ways and Means plan is out the window. Is that fair to say? It's not out the window. It's just a lot of the things that they thought were set uh, are now really being called into question. And the question is, can they get cinema to agree to at least some of the things that they had planned on, uh, you know, in order to to raise the, you know, roughly $2 trillion they need to fund this plan? Laura, great reporting today. Many thanks for being with us. Your column is the first one I read when I woke up this morning. Laura Davison and Eric Wasson on the terminal. And man, if I could borrow just a little bit of Laura's energy. I would be much better for it. Let's bring in Brandon Arnold. 
Executive Vice President of the National Taxpayers Union, former research analyst at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the NRSC, recalling our conversation earlier this week with Senator Rick Scott, the chair. He spent a lot of years on the Hill. Brandon, I can only assume you have an allergy to higher taxes, but, and maybe I'm wrong, you can tell me, is a billionaire's tax better for business than a higher corporate tax rate? Is it better? I think. Well, first of all, I think you're right. I do have a bit of an allergy when it comes to higher taxes, so I'm not really in the market of saying with taxes better than others. I don't like any of them. But yes, in some ways, a billionaire's tax would be less economically problematic than a higher corporate rate. Higher corporate tax rate, you know, research shows that the incidence of that falls on workers, primarily on workers. So you see lower wages, you see uh, fewer employees. There's a big impact that, and that's borne out by virtually all the economic research, whether it's from left-leaning groups or right-leaning groups. Now, that's not to say a tax on billionaires is not problematic. I think it, it is problematic, especially when you're looking at a situation where we just brought in over $4 trillion in tax revenue. We have tax revenue coming in in spades right now. So I would really question the need to raise taxes, but certainly some taxes are, are more harmful than others. It's a campaign spot for Republicans, isn't it? To, to, to just imagine what what would the IRS, how many people the IRS have to hire to get that done? Yeah, this is a, a huge question. You know, Biden's proposal calls for $80 billion in funds going to the IRS. They would use that to hire 87,000 new IRS agents. Now, if we're talking about the wealth tax that you mentioned with Laura a minute ago, yeah. You know, Elizabeth Warren crafted a plan that would require a hundred billion dollars going to the IRS just to enforce the wealth tax. That's a phenomenal increase. You're talking about far more than doubling the size of the IRS and vastly expanding its scope and ability to assess taxes on on individuals. It's how do you it would tax, be a, a dramatic? How do you tax unrealized gains? Is that would that be on? Uh, and of course, I realize this isn't done. They haven't written a bill yet, but in concept. Would people be reporting, uh, even though they haven't sold anything, they'd be reporting unrealized gains, or would the IRS have access to accounts to go in there and kind of audit everyone every year? Yeah, that's that's a great question. The administrability of taxing unrealized gains is opening an enormous can of worms, and there's a lot of questions that would need to be handled in the legislation as well as in subsequent regulations that come out of the IRS. So I can't really answer those questions with a lot of certainty because I don't think they have established how they would do so. But I think the underlying point is an important one. It would be a tremendous mess, a huge mess to try to figure out how much people have made on uh, on their assets because you're not just talking about stocks and, and bonds and things like that. You're talking about other forms of assets. You know, it could involve paintings and, and stamp collections and coins and, and so forth. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons why these unrealized gains, which also are taxed in a wealth tax system, why, why they've provided, they've, they've created so many headaches for tax collectors that even countries like France have gone back and repealed their wealth tax subsequently because it's been such a nightmare to administer. How about stock buybacks then? Is that another way to to effectively raise the corporate tax rate? Yeah, I think that's something on the table. Right now they're talking about a 2% excise tax on stock buybacks. I think stock buybacks have really been demonized by people, particularly on the left. We saw that a lot out of 2017 when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act were passed. And as soon as it took effect, a lot of corporations were using the the additional cash that they had on hand for stock buybacks. Stock buybacks aren't inherently evil. They're not inherently good. They provide some value to shareholders. Those shareholders, of course, involve retirees, people with 401ks and IRAs. So they do provide some benefit. They also free up 
future capital so people stocks i'm sorry companies can reissue uh, uh, those uh, uh, stocks and, and bring in money that can be used for capital investment. So they, they provide some flexibility for a corporation that they might not otherwise have. So I, I kind of view them as a double-edged sword. I don't think we should go and assess taxes on stock buybacks and, and with the notion that these are somehow inherently bad because I don't think that's the case. Brandon Arnold, Executive Vice President of the National Taxpayers Union, we thank you for being with us here on Bloomberg Radio today. To be clear, by the way, Speaker Pelosi was asked about all this, said very, very clearly she preferred the higher corporate tax rate, 26 and a half, that had come out of Ways and Means. She said it was a more fair approach. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So it's on to plan B or well, whatever letter we're on when it comes to taxes to pay for the reconciliation plan, even though it seemed like Democrats were headed for a 26.5% corporate tax rate. That seemed to be baked into the bill or what will be the bill. Speaker Pelosi suggesting today in a briefing with reporters that, well, that's still her preference. We had in our House bill, which I was very proud of, uh, an increase in the corporate rate and an increase in the capital gains and that. It was a very well-received uh, proposal because it wasn't punitive. It was fair. But we'll see what survives, um, uh, what prevails. We will. And the view from the White House, Deputy Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says no matter the tax, what form it takes, the plan will be paid for. As we're talking about physical physical infrastructure and human infrastructure uh, is going to be paid for, uh, we see the cost as zero because it's going to be paid for. And the way that we see it uh, happening is making sure that the wealthiest among us, the top corporations, pay their fair share. And we assemble the panel to talk about it all. Bloomberg Politics contributor... Jeannie Shanzano and Brendan Buck is with us as well, partner at Seven Letter, strategic communications firm here in Washington and former spokesman advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Jeannie, uh, what's your take on this? To, it, it's like whiplash. You go to bed thinking there's something in this deal, then you wake up the next morning and there's a column on the terminal telling you the exact opposite. Is the corporate tax rate hike dead? Joe, I actually wrote, you're reading my mind, whiplash across my notebook today in disgust because, of course, oh, no. we, we had been so optimistic, at least I had been so optimistic yesterday that this was finally coming together. We we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel yeah. to wake up to this today, um, you know, and Laura's reporting, which is amazing. And, you know, it, it, it's mind boggling. And, and you hear what the deputy press secretary is saying, that the bill is going to be paid for. But I think the question that I have and so many of us have is how do you pay for it if you don't get tax and revenue increases? Mm -hmm. Now, cinema, as Laura talked about, is does support some tax increases, but we don't know what those are. So there's that end of it. And then there is the fact that, of course, cinema and mansion don't agree on a few things, and both of them have to be on board for this to work. So, you know, you've got the president out there selling something. He doesn't quite have any details on it. And this blows up last night. So, you know, 
there seems like we are still very far off. Uh, you know, if you told me right now was, you know, May, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> last May, May, I mean, last May. All right. I, I didn't know if we were going ahead to 2022 because no. some people are preparing for that. Uh, the word from the House Minority Leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, what you can imagine. Whether this bill is $4.5 trillion, $3 trillion, or $1.5, the Democrats' proposal will worsen inflation, continue to harbor and harm our labor shortage, won't do anything to stop the border crisis that we have today, and it will set our country back for decades. Also on the panel, Brendan Buck, as I mentioned, partner at Seven Letter, used to work with Speaker Paul Ryan. It's great to have you, Brendan. Uh, what role, if any, should Republicans be playing in this conversation? Is it the McCarthy approach? Hands in your pockets, I'll have nothing to do with this? Or should there be an effort by Republicans to help negotiate this to what Republicans view as the best for the country? Well, I think Republicans already did that in what they're calling the hard infrastructure bill, that bipartisan infrastructure bill, yep. uh, which was bipartisan. Republicans worked on for a really long time and something that I think a lot of people thought um, was never going to happen, but they, they stuck it out and got it done. Uh, this separate, which is what we're calling human infrastructure, and I don't really know what that means, but this other bill, I don't think there's any reason to believe Republicans should have any, any part in it. It's a bunch of tax increases. Uh, it's a massive expansion of government. Uh just the opposite of, that Republicans have have talked about for a long time. And, you know, I don't know that I don't think they need to do anything to help them get there. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think they need to do a whole lot to, to stop it because Democrats are, are doing that quite well on, on their own. <laughs> well, I understand uh, your view on that. But I mean, obviously, Republicans did not want to see the corporate tax rate increase. Is that at least a good thing in your eyes or are Democrats talking about replacing it with even worse? Yeah, you know, I, I have a hard time putting too much credibility in the idea that they're going to replace uh, the corporate tax rate with, with, a, with a wealth tax, because the reason that a wealth tax wasn't on the table in the first place is that's even, as you guys were just discussing, uh, that's really hard to do both politically and administratively. Uh, it feels a lot like they're just grasping at whatever they can. And, and we're, we're playing a Washington game where we're trying to figure out who is leaking what. And it feels like uh, this latest round of, of news is coming from the cinema camp because they want people to understand uh, that she's not backing down, that she's, she's trying to provide solutions. Um, but I don't know that there's a whole lot of buy-in with the rest of the Democratic caucus that this is a good approach. Uh, so, you know, what's yeah. real and what's not, we're, we're, we're trying to really to really suss out. But uh, I don't think a wealth tax is necessarily something that they can just pick up off the shelf and say, uh, well, here's our solution. There's a lot of work to do to even just construct something like that. It would take a very long time. I have to admit, Jeannie, when we're talking about Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, day in, day out, my God, they just get so much airtime. If you were paying attention to what they were saying, this technically is not new, right? You just We have to keep going back to the trough here to say, are you sure? Are you sure you don't like this? I mean, should should we have known in advance that Kirsten Cinema was going to blow up this whole idea? Well, you know, Kirsten Sinema has not spoken, obviously, to the press or the public, but she has been speaking a lot to the White House. And so I'd be surprised if they didn't know. And, of course, Schumer knew about Manchin, but yeah. we find out back in the summer. I read the news release last night announcing the Trump Media and Technology Group. And the first thing I thought was, OK, he's finally launching Trump TV. Remember that? Trump TV. And while that wasn't exactly the goal, it, it actually may not be that far off. As the former president rolls out a SPAC deal with Digital World Acquisition Corp, an effort to launch what will be 
the next big thing in social media. And stock went nuts today. A three-bagger. As we begin our coverage here on Sound On with Bloomberg Stocks reporter Bailey Lipschultz carries the byline. Trump's back deal draws YOLO crowd, in case you're wondering, by the way. YOLO, you only live once. Hey, Bailey, thanks for being with us. This thing tripled today, huh? Yeah, the stock tripled. It was the most traded asset on the Fidelity platform, so that uh, geared towards individual investors. Obviously seeing tremendous volume, over 400 million shares trading. So Wall Street actually obviously having a bit of a hand in the massive run-up, but as you said, up just over 330%, closing at 4550 uh, really was the story of the day within the stock market, talking uh, really to anyone, whether it was a Wall Street pro or an individual investor who was patrolling you know, Reddit or other social media platforms. Amazing. So much for SPACs being out of style here. I mean, that, that's a pretty remarkable debut for any stock here. Is it, is it the, the lure of the Trump name or the idea that he's launching a new social media platform? I think it's a bit of both. I've talked to some people um, who really just said, you know, the stock is similar to a cryptocurrency where it's trading off of fundamentals, people just buying and selling it, trying to make a quick buck. But I also was talking to some investors who were saying, you know, they view the kind of more right-wing conservative potential for attracting a platform. Obviously, he had millions and millions of followers on Twitter and Facebook. So if he's able to successfully roll it out, there is very much an untapped potential uh, for users, because people are obviously on everything from Instagram to Twitter to Facebook, so it could be uh, potentially successful. But it doesn't have a—it's not rolled out yet. A beta platform will be rolling out in November. Uh, they're not expecting a nation, national rollout until the first quarter of next year. Yep. So a lot of uh, fanfare for for kind of an early inning story. Is that when the deal will be done? When does the the actual merger take place, Bailey? Well, they just announced it today. Obviously, SPACs have been known to kind of have ebbs and flows. So that was just yeah. a, that was just the announcement. So it was not that they were closing. Obviously, we're, we work traded for the first day today. That was a closed, uh, successfully merged back deal. This one, still not much detail on when it will actually be publicly traded and has to go through a number of obstacles uh, before that is completed. Okay, great reporting from Bailey Lipschultz. We thank you for being with us. Here on Sound On, Bailey, and joining me in studio is Bloomberg National Political Reporter Mark Niquette. It's great to see you, Mark. I'm lucky that you're here with us to talk through this today. I can only imagine what went through your mind when you saw this news release last night. As it says, Trump Media and Technology Group will soon be launching a social network named Truth Social. So is everyone who followed him on Twitter going to go here? Well, I think that's what they're counting on, because um, we've been waiting for a long time for Trump to roll out something. Something. The expectation was he was going to try to get back to social media in some way, just because um, he he doesn't think he said that he doesn't think he would have been reelected. He would have, would have been elected in 2016 if he didn't have access to Twitter and he could directly connect with 89 million people. Um, and he used Facebook very successfully to fundraise. Mm-hmm. But it was always a question about how would Trump get back on social media? Would he acquire an existing platform yeah. and rebrand it as Trump Twitter, uh, or try and start something from scratch, which you know, most people doubted because of how expensive and time-consuming and difficult that would be. Um, and it's still unclear what this this Trump, you know, uh, media technology group is actually going to look like. Uh, you know, th- like you said, they're talking about rolling out the um, the sort of the Twitter component of mm-hmm. this um, uh, Truth Social, 
um, you know, first quarter of 2022. But, you know, we don't know what that's going to look like, if this is new, something they're creating from scratch, or yeah. if they're going to buy something and, and rebrand it. Um, we're still looking for, for details on this. I, just, I clicked on truthsocial.com. There is something there. But to your point, you can't see a lot other than a, a, an opportunity to pre-order on the Apple App Store. So you can go get it on your phone or whatever right now. Uh, they write in the news release, the aim of the deal is to rival, quote, the liberal media consortium and fight back against the big tech companies of Silicon Valley. So this is just sort of retribution for being kicked off of everything. Right. But there's also, you know, a, a sense in in Republican circles that uh, big tech, social media, Twitter and mm-hmm. Facebook in particular censors conservatives and censors Trump. Um, you, you see it daily on Twitter that. Um, you know, the Taliban can be on Twitter, but not President yes, Trump. Yes, right. Um, and, and, of course, he was kicked off because of, you know, you know, questions about whether he actually incited his supporters to, you know, attack the Capitol on January 6th. So it's not like it was for nothing that, mm-hmm. you know, he was removed from these platforms. Certainly, uh, yes. Now, with, with all of that said, uh, Mark, this could be a lot more than just a, uh, a social network. Once you have this company, once this merger takes place— you could buy a news network. You could start a news network. So many people talked about that toward the close of of Donald Trump's term. You know, he he can't wait to just get back on TV and and be able to own it. Do you see that type of thing in his future? Well, they're kind of suggesting that that's what this you know new entity could be. That it would have multiple platforms. There'd be like a like a Twitter platform. Mm-hmm. This this Truth Social. Um, they're talking about a subscription digital streaming service for video, which could be like, you know, Trump TV or yes. something that rivals uh, Netflix or competes with other streaming services. Um, so, again, they're talking about sort of a multi-platform media conglomerate or entity. But, you know, we still have yet to see the details of how, how all that's going to be structured and, and how this is all going to get created. Could buy a Newsmax or an ON or something like that? Are you, are you open to these possibilities? Well, I, yeah, that's a question. You know, is, yeah. is part of this going to be something that's completely created from scratch or would incorporate existing platforms and technologies or networks uh, and be sort of a distribution channel? Yes, absolutely. So instead of sending a tweet, in this case, you'd send a truth. <laughs> I guess is that what, is that what we're going to call it? <laughs> I guess that's the idea. Yeah, he's pretty good at this. Pretty good at the branding bit. Yep. The SPAC more than quadrupled at one point to $45, more than 470 million shares. Uh Mark, there's still something there, huh? Yep. Well, and, and I think they have an audience for this. You yeah. know, if, if you have 89 million people following you on Twitter, I think the idea is there's there's people who want to join. A built-in and captive audience. Mark Niket is Bloomberg National Political Reporter. Great to have you, Mark. Thanks Thank for you. being with us here on Sound On. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. But will there be kofefe on Truth Social? These are the questions. As we learn, Donald Trump is launching his own social media platform through a SPAC deal just announced with Digital World Acquisition. That tripled today on news of this deal. And we reassemble the panel to talk about it with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Brendan Buck, partner at Seven Letter, former spokesman and advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. You remember how to kofefe, Jeannie? 
I do. You just brought back some great, great memories. And of course, I'm still back on this. Now we have to think about truthing in addition to tweeting. I, truthing. I, I haven't even gotten to the tweeting yet, so I'm way behind. <laughs> I just love the idea of sending a truth. Uh, Brandon, you sign up for this yet? You got it on the phone? <laughs> I will say this. I will believe it when I see it, that Donald oh. Trump gets his act together enough. Well, uh, Jason Miller will be glad stuff. to hear that. Wait, yeah. so you're you're not buying into this, uh, Brendan? Is this just a, a news release to get me to talk about it? Well, Donald Trump has a long history of telling us what he's going to do, not mm-hmm. things that he's actually done. And so, you know, he he, he may well go through with it. Um, just like I think a lot of us doubted he would run for president. Um, Can't imagine. There are certainly, many, many, many examples. Um, particularly when he says he's going to sue somebody, where uh, it never actually uh, comes to fruition. So. Uh, it just seems like a lot of work for somebody who, in my opinion, looks like he's actually more interested in running for president. Yeah, well. uh, And if, uh, I think that's probably his priority above starting a, a media company. This could, though, be a platform to do that. Is it right, Jeannie? If he's not allowed on Twitter or Facebook, he needs to have some access, some way to talk to people outside of you know yelling on the stump uh, every other night. Uh, social media is the way he did that so successfully. Well, that's right. And, you know, to Brendan's point, there was the from the desk of Donald J. Trump, I believe it was called blog, you know, about 20, 30 days. We had that in the spring that went by the wayside. They're trying this. The reaction seems much more positive. So, you know, unlike most presidents, he's not going, you know, and building his library or doing that kind of thing. He is coming back on social media, most likely because he has a real interest in not just relitigating the 2020 election as he's Mm -hmm. doing, but potentially running for office and certain keeping his control over the Republican Party. But, you know, it's a long way between what we're seeing now and what we see, saw laid, rolled out today, and certainly the reaction on Wall Street was positive, and mm. him actually getting a working platform out there with 80 million users or whatever he had on Twitter. Yeah, those are two very different things. And I do wonder, by the way, to what that's, what's going to happen to that stock tomorrow. After running up threefold today, I do wonder. Uh, but, you know, look, we can joke about Kofefe. I'm the one who said it. There is a a serious aspect to this for conservatives who feel like they do not have a home on social media or or in big tech. For instance, we all remember this. Our case will prove this censorship is unlawful, it's unconstitutional, and it's completely un-American. Donald Trump in July as he filed yet another lawsuit against tech companies for censorship. Is that a word that you use uh, Brendan, for for conservatives, even Republicans who may not associate themselves with Trump, do you feel like views are being stifled by the Googles, the YouTubes, the Twitters of the world? I, I personally do not. Um, and I think it's important to appreciate why Donald Trump was removed from these platforms. And it was because of all of the actions uh, surrounding January 6th and leading up to it and the election and all of that misinformation. Um, I think conservatives still have a very large platform and voice on social media. If you look at the top 10 Facebook posts every day, it's usually uh, somebody conservative. Mm-hmm. But what this is, is it plays into Donald Trump's populist victimhood narrative. And it's that the elites are out to get him and his supporters and it sells. And he, and he, he uses that uh, very effectively to say that he's fighting on behalf of the little people and they're targeting him mm-hmm. because he's fighting for them. Um, and it's all very circular, but it works for him. Um, I think that it's a fight that, uh, he, you know, he doesn't mind having 
I think he'd rather be on Twitter, but if he can't be on Twitter, I think he, he loves to take advantage of these things and, and say that he's the victim once again. I appreciate your view on that, Brendan, but it, it's it's not just fringe, uh, Jeannie. I, I mean, depending on, well, you can use the labels, but Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader in the House, a lot of lawmakers who are still in elected office here in Washington say they are censored every day by the major social media platforms and by the big tech companies in many cases that don't even have one. That's right. This has been the argument from Republicans and conservatives right along. You know, liberals have their own, uh, you know, beef with the social media companies, the big tech companies. But for conservatives, it has been that they are being stifled. They are being kicked off. I have talked to personally many conservatives who have said they themselves have been victim, as they describe it, of big tech pulling them off the platform. So this is I mean, you know, I was joking about it, but this argument is something that resonates with people across the country who are frustrated with the amount of power that people like Mark Zuckerberg and other, you know, big tech providers and social media companies have. And, you know, I have to say, when you have a former president who isn't allowed on the biggest platforms, it, it is something that frustrates people. One of the other stories, and, and they, they kind of tie in together today, is this vote to hold Steve Bannon in criminal contempt of Congress. If only we could send a truth on this, it actually did happen today. This follows the initial uh, move to hold him in contempt, but the House indeed voted to hold, this is the full House, Steve Bannon, in criminal contempt of Congress, which will now go to the Department of Justice, right? They refer this to DOJ, which will then decide whether there should be criminal charges. And if so, Steve Bannon could, in fact, be going to jail. As we heard from Representative Liz Cheney earlier today, no friend of Camp Trump and, in fact, one of the only Republicans on the January 6th commission. He must have been aware of and may well have been involved in the planning of everything that played out on that day. The American people deserve to know what he knew and what he did. Brendan, we've talked about this on this program before. It's been suggested that this is, in fact, good, potentially, for Steve Bannon's brand. Is it good for Trump's brand? Well, you know, I I think brand aside, I think we should appreciate that this is a serious matter. And um, a lot of times you hear people talk about, like, censures and and, and congressional terms. But, like, criminal contempt is a real deal. And, like, you can go to jail and and it's serious and doesn't happen very often. And I think what this is going to show, all those other 19 witnesses uh, that that committee is is talking to is that don't mess around here because we'll come after you. And, uh, you know, this is the type of thing that rarely happens because usually people understand that and they work together and they come to some type of accommodation and they and they cooperate. Um, I always, as I was saying before, everything comes back in, in Trump world but to being the victim and to being targeted by the elites. And so, yeah, I'm sure that uh, Steve Bannon uh, can use it to his advantage. Donald Trump can use it to his advantage. Uh, but this is not a game I would be willing to play because uh, I don't think you want to find yourself with a chance of, of being behind bars, which I think he really has a legitimate chance of being. You still believe that, Jeannie, that we could see Steve Bannon in handcuffs over this? And, and if that's the case, what does this mean for Mark Meadows? We haven't heard anything about the former chief of staff since we were told he was, quote, engaging with the committee. 
That's right. And, and you know, I, I think one of the stunning things today as we watch this vote play out was the fact that only nine Republicans voted to hold Steve Bannon in contempt. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's not forget, you know, setting aside that this is about January 6th and all of those things. This is about whether Congress has its power of oversight. And when Republicans are in a position of power, they do have the important role of oversight over the executive branch and investigations. And when when they issue a subpoena, that really should be abided by. And of course, Steve Bannon claiming executive privileges is something of a joke. But you're right, Mark Meadows and the others, you know, they have, we've heard, been engaging with the committee. And, you know, I, I see Mark Meadows as different than Steve Bannon to yeah. the extent that Steve Bannon wanted. He wants this. This works for him. I don't think Mark Meadows wants this, you know, so I think he'll cooperate, um, you know, to a certain extent and try to avoid a year in jail. Yeah, to Jeannie's point, the vote was 229 to 202. Nine Republicans, as Jeannie said, ranking ranks to, ranks to vote with Democrats and hold Steve Bannon uh, in contempt. Uh, Brendan, I don't know what you think about the statement from Steve Scalise, but you've got a member of the House Republican leadership, the House Whip, who is, in fact, urging members to vote against the measure before this vote was taken. You're whipping, whipping members to say no to this Uh is that good for the party, or is that good only for Donald Trump? Yeah, you know, I actually imagine they didn't have to work too hard to get people to vote no on this. Look, the party has made a bet that they need Donald Trump on their side and that they can't turn out Republican voters in the midterm election uh, unless they are engaged. And I think a lot of them have learned the hard way that fighting with them um, doesn't really work politically. Uh, so, you know, I think the, the, the only votes you saw for the contempt on the Republican side were those same people just about who voted to impeach the president last right. time. Yep, that's um, right. and, I, and I salute them. I, I think that this was the right thing to do. Uh, as was said, uh, you know, Congress has an authority. And if you're a member of Congress, you should want to protect that authority. And by saying that you can just look the other way, um, I think that it, that it weakens the institution fundamentally. And, that, and that's wrong. But I think we've also seen that uh, the power of Donald Trump and what he has, uh, the effect he has on, on base voters, their voters, uh, really uh, takes the day uh, time and time again. And so I don't think they had to assert a whole lot of pressure to get Republicans to vote no, because they know locally their own politics, their own per- political incentives. It works for them. Speaking of leadership, Kevin McCarthy was asked about that whipping uh, votes against the measure. Jeannie, he said that's because it's an invalid subpoena and it's not a real committee is there any truth to that no there's no truth to that you have a bipartisan committee you know the reason we didn't have more of a bipartisan committee was because they refused to play ball with the democrats that's the first time that that has happened Jeannie Shanzano and Brendan Buck, a great panel on an important day here in political history. Aren't they kind of all lately? That's why we have the fastest hour in politics. Thanks for spending time with us. I'll meet you back here tomorrow on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of visit bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more